There are two scriptures today for the scripture reading. First is from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 to 34. Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant though I was a husband to them declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the people of Israel after that time declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. No longer will they teach their neighbor or say to one another, Know the Lord, because they will all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. And from Luke chapter 5, verses 36 to 39. He told them this parable. No one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch an old one. Otherwise, they will have torn the new garment, and the patch from the new will not match the old. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. The wine will run out, and the wineskins will be ruined. No, new wine must be poured into new wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, for they say the old is better. This morning, John Nisley is with us, and he'll be leading us in the, to begin this new five-week series on mold-breaking, thinking about how God calls us to and invites us to break the old molds and allow the new Spirit of God to work in our life. John is originally from Morgantown, Pennsylvania. He has served in various ministry capacities over the 50 years, including youth counselor, camp director, street ministry leader, director of evangelism and church growth, seminary professor, and ordained minister in the Mennonite church. His undergraduate training in, uh, in individual and family counseling was at Pennsylvania State University. He continued his education at the following seminaries, Grand Rapids Theological, Fuller Theological, Eastern Mennonite, Lancaster Theological, Bethel Theological, and Weinbrenner Theological. Since his retirement in July 20 of 2020, he continues to teach part-time, and since August of 2021, John is serving as the bishop in the Great Lakes West District of LMC, which is the district that we are a part of. And I believe we have shared that and announced that. 
John and his wife Lois actually visited with us at the 175th anniversary that we held this past September. John's life verse is John 10.10, which says, The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. John, would you come on up? John's call and compassion is to equip leaders for kingdom service. John, it's great to have you with us. Thank you for your willingness to serve as our bishop. And uh, we, we look forward to the Lord speaking through you this morning. Would you pray with me? Gracious God, we pray that you would give your words to John. Thank you for his servant's heart all through these years. We pray that uh, you would continue to use him. And we appreciate his leadership. And we ask, Lord, that, that you would bring something new to our hearts and minds this morning uh, through him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you, Pastor Wes. It is a delight to be with you on this crisp winter morning. And I will finish the intro part and say that uh, my wife, Lois, couldn't be with us. She's home this weekend. And we have two married daughters. One lives near Pittsburgh, and she has three children. And uh, these are great grandchildren. We think we have the best grandchildren. Uh, they happen to be Steeler fans, so we have a lot to cheer about, right? And uh, Olivia is 19, AJ is 14, and Gino is 8. And then our youngest daughter, Laura, lives in Finley with us and uh, is a school teacher. And her husband's a barber. So if you need a haircut, we have the best barber in Northwest Ohio there in Finley. And uh, if you're looking for a good haircut, go to Swanson's Barbershop. No commission on this. And they have a seven-year-old grandson, a son, uh, Jesse, who is our delight to help raise. Thinking about uh, our, our life and how we live out our faith, uh, one of the things I do as far as my hobbies, to end the intro here, is I have several hobbies. Uh, I'm a uh, year-round cyclist, which means I'm still riding. If you want to get your bicycle out, it's not that cold. Anything above zero is still rideable. And uh, also gardening and uh, genealogy. And you heard about Penn State, Penn State football, one of my hobbies. And uh, so those are things I try to connect with uh, friends and people in our community. And building those kinds of uh, friendships and those informal ways, I have found to be a great way to share our faith because of that common affinity we have around these various hobbies. Well, my life verse, John 10.10, 10, uh, that was a turning point in my life some years ago. And when I was going through a Bible study course in part of breaking the molds in my life, I was doing a correspondence kind of study with uh, Billy Graham. It's one of those things where you watch Billy Graham and all of a sudden what he was saying became personal to me. And uh, I responded and uh, recommitted my life to Christ when I was 25. And uh, thinking about the molds, I'll say more about that later, that God had to break in my life. This thing of the abundant life, I uh, was intrigued to study that. And 
what, when you get into the meaning when it says abundant there, what that word means is that it's a deeper level of life that's not only everlasting in eternity, but also has a deeper quality right now. So it's deeper and it's also unending. And when I experienced that new kind of commitment to Christ and that abundant life, there, that was a turning point in my life of breaking molds. Well, thinking about um, my role in LMC, this is new for me, and so I'm sort of like the new kid on the block. I'm still learning. This is another chapter in my journey of ministry, and that journey began when I was 19, and now this is at the retirement stage, and my wife reminds me, uh, Lois, that I'm semi-retired. I'm not retired. <laughs> and so... Uh, in LMC, we are uh, excited about partnering with churches like Yellow Creek to extend God's kingdom here in Indiana as well as around the globe. Through our mission board and other connections with MCC, we are delighted to uh, partner with you. Your prayers and financial support are greatly appreciated. And I'm excited about how we continue to work together as we learn to understand each other and our goals that we can, in a sense, mutually work together to build God's kingdom. Well, looking at this passage, uh, when I was asked to come and share, I was delighted. This is like telling a kid to go to the candy store to pick up a delivery. I couldn't wait to go pick it up because this passage here about wineskins is very intriguing for me. It's been part of my thinking and how I've approached life and ministry for many decades. Years ago, Howard Snyder wrote a book about the problem of wineskins. And when you read this passage in Luke, at first glance you look at that and you say, because we don't have, in a sense, wineskins around, we might have bottles of wine or kegs of wine, but we don't understand the whole business of wineskins. And like so many of the things that we find in scripture, it helps to dig a little deeper into what is a wineskin. A wineskin is usually a hide of a small animal. You take the four legs, you know, and I have the neck, and you tie that all up and put a rope on it. And if you have an old one that you have now, it's dried out after some time, and try to put new wine into that old wineskin that now might be hanging in the shed or the attic someplace, and you go and try to put new wine into that, it's not going to work. And we'll get into that later on as to why that is an issue. But think about this passage. If you turn with me to Luke, and we're sort of going to walk through this, and I appreciate very much the Christmas atmosphere. To me, I'm still a kid at heart. As you get to know me, uh, I listen to Christmas music on YouTube year-round, and I don't mind having Christmas decorations around. Uh, one year, I uh, pleaded with my wife Lois to leave them up till Groundhog Day. We did that one year. But uh, now, it usually, uh, once we get into the new year, uh, she's ready to clean up some of the decorations. But I am a person that just enjoys that whole concept of the incarnation of Christ and what that means to us. Without Christmas, there's no Easter, and we wouldn't be here. So it's a very important part of our faith and to understand the importance of the incarnation of the Son of God. Well, if you look at Luke uh, chapter 1, and just begin there at verse 3, 
you get that name of who this book is written to. Dr. Luke, a Gentile convert to the faith, is writing a book to one of his disciples, person he is training, and is trying to explain to him how this faith that began over in the obscure part of the Roman Empire ended up in Rome. And so he starts here with, and he says, Dear Theophilus, and he's trying to explain to him and starts with the Gospel of Luke telling the Christ story, and that's volume one, and then he goes into volume two, which would be the book of Acts. And that picks up the story after the ascension of Christ, then from there till the Gospel is preached in Rome by the Apostle Paul. So in this... Uh, sort of intro here to his gospel, he's going to give a background to who Jesus is. And so think about breaking the mold, this new covenant that Jesus is announcing, this is like really new and strange, foreign as it could be abstract to someone like Theophilus who didn't have a Jewish background and is coming to this message of hope and faith in Christ. What is he talking about in terms of a new covenant? And so he begins there with the life of Jesus and talks about the prophecies that are fulfilled, the announcement, and going on there, you get through to the uh, genealogy of Jesus into chapter 2. You have the birth. And so this is giving a background to the incarnation of Christ for Theophilus. And so now he comes into chapter 3, and here we find now the young adult Jesus being baptized, and then Luke shares the genealogy. And so he's trying to give a very detailed account, and he searched out written records as well as oral reports, and as a doctor, he is going to leave no rock unturned. He wants to get all the data he can and make it as accurate and precise, puts everything in order for a reason. And so then that gets us up to chapter four, and then he begins with the public ministry of Christ. So we're explaining the fulfillment of prophecy, tying into Old Testament faith, and then we come into the actual birth, the incarnation, and now we're here at the temptation of Christ, the launching of his public ministry. And so after that spiritual battle in the desert, Luke then begins now the story of Jesus' public ministry. Now, this is really fascinating here, how when you think about Jesus in his hometown is announcing the new covenant. And if you look there in uh, chapter 4, uh, tie into uh, verse 19. And this is a pivotal point there for Jesus in his public ministry in announcing this new covenant because he says he stops reading there in Isaiah at this one verse. He says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. He doesn't finish that verse from Isaiah because it says, then the judgment coming. So this is now saying in the new covenant, this is the first advent of Christ. The judgment of Christ is going to come in the second advent. And so the new covenant here is the unfolding of this new work of God in salvation of humanity. The response to Jesus Reading that and some comments there in the synagogue in his hometown, Nazareth, at first he gets good positive response. 
And then after he then gives a little commentary on this, which is the usual kind of pattern of the rabbi, he'll read it, give some comments, but then he'll probe deeper and give some of the deeper prophetic insights. The people are enraged and says, all the people in the town, and I try to think about that, they would have known about Jesus' background growing up in the town. Here he is, the supposed son of Joseph and Mary, and they are going to reject him, and they conspire to go out and throw him off a cliff and end his life. Talk about a short ministry. That's pretty short, isn't it? So Jesus is rejected in his hometown, and he realizes this and tells them that's what happens to prophets, that they're rejected when they break the mold in their hometown, they're usually rejected. And so Jesus goes, it says, just simply he goes through their midst. It wasn't his time to end. His destiny is the cross, not being thrown off a cliff. Then Luke continues a story about how Jesus has victory over demons and disease and uh, legalism. And he takes the story over to our passage in chapter 5 to verse 27. And at this point, we can think about it, that what we're on is we're going with Dr. Luke, and if you can think of it, we're going to do a house call. We're going to go and look deeper into now this unfolding of Jesus' ministry and what does it mean, this new covenant. And Jesus, as a teaching rabbi in Judaism, he then says to them, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi, and we know Levi by another name of Matthew, the writer of the Gospel of Matthew. And uh, what's interesting is when Matthew in his Gospel talks about Jesus calling the 12, he puts it right out front. He says, when he's listing all the disciples being called, including himself, there, the 12, that he says, and Matthew the tax collector. Identifying yourself as a tax collector, I was trying to think of what would be an analogy for us in today's world. Someone who has a lot of money is sort of despised by most people, not trusted, and is sort of seen as a scoundrel or someone you don't want to associate with. Because they would skim off the crowd, the people that they were taxing, and keep extra for themselves and give just what was required to the Roman authorities. So they weren't trusted and were seen as people who took advantage of others. And I thought, well, maybe uh, someone like uh, running a casino or running a pawn shop or a loan shark, you could think of what is the person that would fit this category. And Matthew is not ashamed of identifying that that's what he was when Jesus called him. And here Luke includes this story to say, this is the story of really Levi or Matthew's call. And we're going to use Matthew or Levi as a metaphor, a prototype, a model of what does it mean for a person who is despised, rejected, and marginalized to come into the new covenant. And the reason that I think Luke is doing this, Luke's gospel collects many of these people who are marginalized and not really in the, say, the mainstream or the power center in the culture of that day. So Levi, or Matthew, is a rejected person. He is a tax collector. 
And so Jesus knows that the Pharisees, this would be the religious conservatives of that day, and the teachers of the law, the scribes, that they're watching him, and at every step, what he does, what he eats, how is he keeping himself, in a sense, ceremonially clean? Jesus then says to him, follow me, knowing that this is going to bring a reaction. And the follow me words mean for Matthew or Levi, it means a total change of direction of his life. For us to dig a little deeper to understand when Jesus says, follow me, it's not talking about, you know, follow me to the nearest grocery. It's talking about you coming and living with me. And you'll know from other stories when Jesus would call the, his disciples, they would drop their nets. Think of, you know, James and John and Andrew and Peter. You change your occupation and now you're going from whatever your occupation was, now you are a full-time student of the rabbi. And, we're, and Wes read uh, the, the uh, litany of the schools I attended. Um, you know, for some of us, like myself, I needed, I needed to go to a lot of seminaries because I'm a slow learner, so I needed to go to a lot of them. And actually, I enjoyed it a lot. And um, I remember that when I was in my first seminary experience, in the morning we would get up, and I was a house husband. My wife was working nights as a wife. I was the house husband. I did the cooking and the laundry and childcare and was a full-time student because my wife was working nights, uh, 11 to uh, 7 or 8 in the morning uh, in neonatal there in Grand Rapids. And uh, you can just think about that. And anytime you see Lois, just encourage her that she survived this because um, I learned, and I can give you the recipes afterwards, that I would do the, um, the meals uh, all in one pan. And I save dishes. You know, you're very efficient. If we're having rice and beans and hot dogs, I put it all in one pan, stirred it, and then put that in the table, and that's what we ate. And um, keep in mind, for my dear wife, uh, when she was getting up, <clears throat> this was her breakfast. Okay? <laughs> So it's, you know, a lot of times in scripture we have to put on the cultural hat and try to understand them. And for her, she had to adjust to put on the hat. Oh, this is their supper and my breakfast. So she survived several years of that and my cooking and laundry. And uh, it shows that we can be flexible. And uh, I guess I was breaking some molds there. But uh, she used to tease me, she, you know, in the morning when she was uh, coming home and then going to bed that um, the three students were going out with their lunch pails there to school. And she said, there goes my three students. And uh, it sort of was fun. There I'd walk out with her daughters to the uh, bus stop, and I'm uh, walking on over to uh, the seminary. We lived right on the seminary grounds in an apartment. So following me, being a student, you could think of this as a life change. This is being a seminary student, not just going to class, but this is living with your professor. This is living with the rabbi. And as you read the Gospels, that's what they're doing. The Gospels are a record of a teaching rabbi on mission, calling people to be equipped by him, and he's going to be training and modeling for them 24-7 how to be a new disciple in this new covenant. And there were other rabbis that were teaching uh, other methods because you had the Pharisees and uh, 
John the Baptist had his disciples and they were following him. And this was one of the points of, uh, if you want to say, tension between Jesus and the Pharisees and the disciples of uh, John is that they were fasting and praying and we'll catch on later here what happens with uh, Jesus' disciples when he calls a tax collector. So when Levi hears Jesus say to him, follow me, he realizes that no longer is his identity a tax collector because he responds in a positive way. And Levi got up and just like you find with the other 12 that he called, left everything. Now it just has a comma there, but there had to be some thinking process going on between the call and dropping everything and then following him. And if you look at that verse there, it's, it's pretty compact. It doesn't give a lot of allowance for him to, you know, hand on the business or do something with his, uh, if I say his career, his vocation. When Jesus called these people, I try to put myself in their place, and it really is mind-boggling. It's very difficult to think of someday somebody coming into your business and coming up to you and saying, ta-da, I'm Jesus, I'm here to announce the kingdom of God, the new covenant, follow me. You just simply don't even lock the door, you just walk out and that's it, and there's no going back. So that is the radical call of the new covenant, definitely breaking molds. So Levi's response to this is he holds a party, a great banquet. Probably not unlike what was happening last evening, there was a great party probably over in Buffalo. They had a lot to celebrate. Well, Levi had a lot more to celebrate here. And this large crowd of tax collectors and others who were eating with them, uh, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law didn't like the crowd that Jesus was in a sense, calling out to follow him, these people who were tax collectors and sinners. And when we look at what a sinner is there, what the Pharisees were thinking is, these are people who are not following, if you want to say, the ceremonial law of the Jewish tradition and what the Pharisees had established. And what the Pharisees had done, they had taken the law of Moses and then going beyond that another step. So if you would say this is the measure of something, if you're going to take five ounces of something, the Pharisees would say you need to take 10 ounces because they wanted to avoid breaking God's laws. They made the rituals and the traditions so excessive they were a burden to the people and the people couldn't follow them. Jesus comes along with a new paradigm, a new covenant that Jeremiah is saying it's going to be from the inside out. It's going to change your heart and it's going to change your attitudes and your behavior. So it's proceeding from your heart then going out. Jesus answered them and said, when they're ridiculing him, he says, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but it's the sick. And Jesus is there identifying, and this is one of the themes that Luke's going to develop is that Jesus is coming to bring good news to those who have an open heart and are seeking change in their life. So now when we get to the text for today, Jesus is now uh, bringing a set of parables here, two of them, to try and explain to the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, what's happening. 
And so he's explaining that when you bring the new covenant in, you can't attach it like an old piece of cloth, a new piece of cloth. It won't match. And if you put the new wine into old wineskins, the old wineskins being a metaphor for the old Jewish traditions and the old way of doing things, if you do that, it's going to burst them. And the reason it's going to burst is when wine ferments, and I did a little bit of research on this, uh, it gives off carbon dioxide, and uh, supposedly in some of the uh, places around the world where they have a lot of vineyards and they're making wine, that carbon dioxide pollution is a major problem, and every year there are people who die, workers who are making wine because of the release of carbon dioxide. And I thought about that. That'd be similar for us in our uh, agrarian background here in northern Indiana. It'd be like going into a silo after you put the silage in. I don't know too much about that because we left the farm when I was two. But I know that every year there are some people that get exposed to the gas coming out of silage, fresh into a silo that's fermenting, that gives off enough carbon dioxide that it's going to kill people. And that's similar to what we're saying here. There's that much, in a sense, fermentation going on in this small wineskin that's going to burst the wineskin. The wine goes out. That's ruined as well as the wineskin. So Jesus says, the new covenant with the spirit of renewal, of changing people, needs to be put into a new wineskin. And what he's saying is that the old way of doing things is going to have to change. So this is a powerful metaphor here in this series. I didn't select it, I was assigned it, and it's exciting. But to think about it, it's a perfect metaphor to think about breaking the mold. And so I was gonna share, uh, and I made a list of them here, a couple reflection points for us this morning about how we can break the mold in our life. And uh, so I have three levels of reflections, and I have, in a sense, uh, these are, Three points to ponder, three questions to think about. And on a personal level, uh, I've had to, as I shared about my own personal renewal in my life, to experience the abundant life in Christ, I had to break some molds. And that breaking process of God in my life continues on. It's not like once and done. Uh, This is sort of like an ongoing process. And the issue that I had to uh, break, the mold in my life, was the lack of forgiveness. Along the way in my life, in my childhood, and then later on into my adulthood, into my uh, ministry life, along the way there are some issues, some things that happen that you could call as wounds or hurts. And that's true for any of us in our life and career and ministry, no matter what it is. That's part of being part of humanity, because there's going to be in relationships tensions and hurt feelings, misunderstandings, and things that end up wounding and hurting us. Well, I was looking at in terms of forgiveness, and what I realized is that God wanted to go deeper than me just forgiving the people. He wanted me to release the wound. So Jesus' call to uh, breaking the mold is a call to letting go of control, taking up the cross, and following him. I think of grace as the sledgehammer that breaks our restrictive molds as we give our new wineskins to Jesus. 
And so here's the reflection question for you, the first one. What molds is the Spirit inviting me? This is a personal question for you. Answer yourself. What mold is the Spirit asking me to break in my life? You want to give the Spirit permission to allow him, by his grace, to break the molds in your life. And for me, it was the lack of forgiveness and releasing the wound. The second area is on a group level, and I call this intentional community. This can be your small group, your Sunday school class, your family, or I just call it your gang that you hang out with, okay? I hang out with a cycling gang, and I'm not, I'm not talking about, I say I'm a cyclist, people think, oh, a motorcycle? No, this is pedals, okay? This is a bicycle. I, that's, that's the gang I hang out with. And uh, Richard Foster and Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that unless we allow our kingdom spirituality to be embodied in a community, that's a small group, our family, our class, our family, our gang, it has to be embodied somewhere beyond just ourselves that we will have little impact for the kingdom of God and it will dissipate. So my wife and I, we have started small groups in uh, most of the churches that we have attended. And when the pandemic hit three years ago, I saw that some of the people in our church were being impacted. And I could see it in the terms of loneliness, the frustration, the things you see on uh, television shows in terms of what is happening in our culture, the tensions with this. And so I, we invited some people in our uh, church to form a small group and this would be like you know this is definitely uh, not very wise to do you're starting a pandemic and uh, the mayor in our town said you know people stay home and so the churches were closed for a while and all that so we were live streaming and all that so we're starting a small group and we invite him to this and as we were doing this we began to realize that the people we were selecting that this was being led by God because we found a common theme that we didn't know on a deeper level from just meeting people on Sunday morning in church. This is the power of a small group. So as we got to build trust with each other, we found a common theme for the people is that there were wounds and hurts in their past experience in church and in family, and that was continuing on at the current time. And so as we built trust, uh, with the people, they began to open up their hearts and share the hurts and the pain. And we have formed a prayer support network for each other and inviting others in our church and community to be part of this small group. So how do you do a small group in a pandemic? We had to break the mold. Uh, so let me see. Uh, I said, well, I have an easy answer for you. This would be a great idea, right? John, you have lots of good ideas. Let's do it Zoom. What do you think their response was to that? Absolutely no. Okay, plan B. What's plan B in breaking the mold? Plan B says, uh, well, how about if we go to a local park and uh, we'll sit under a tree, have some shade, and have a picnic, have a meal, and they said, yeah, that's what we'll do. 
So we began that and we did that until it got a little bit cold. And then some of the people said, you know what, this, we like doing this. Let's not stop, we'll meet in our garages. So now we meet in our garages, bring your folding, your lawn chair, folding chair. And that's how we do our small group. And sometimes we have a meal, sometimes just a snack. Um, but here's the question I have for you, for the, the uh, group. If it's your Sunday school class, small group, family, gang, whatever you want to think about in terms of your intentional community, where you're going to live out the new covenant, is how can our group become a discipling community that breaks the mold? And I'll repeat that. How can our group become a discipling community that breaks the mold? My third area is congregational. And this is about the new wineskin. So it's a personal level, it's in a group level, a family level. In a congregational level, thinking about Howard Snyder saying there's a problem with wineskins and church structures in that if you realize it, if you've hung around the church for a couple decades, you realize there's no perfect structure, program, or method. Do you remember the church busing era and how popular it was with some churches? And I don't know if you have a church bus here or not. I don't know if you ever had one in the past or not. In my first pastorate, after I was there uh, some months, I noticed there was this old rusting piece of equipment in the back corner of the parking lot. It was an old deteriorating school bus. And so I took it upon myself to have it as my task to raise the question. Since no one else was raising it, I would be listening you know, in team meetings and in church council meetings. And I asked the question, I said, what is that old school bus doing in the back corner of the parking lot? And then they shared the story how they used to use that with youth outreach and so on. Well, eventually they got rid of it. So here's the question I have for Yellow Creek Church. What wineskins do you have as a congregation that are ready to be changed? So what happened with Levi and Matthew and for us as individuals needs to also happen in our families, our gang, our Sunday school class, and then as a church, we all can get to a point where the wineskins become dry and crackle and crunch, sort of like, you know, Rice Krispies in the morning. And we need to change them and have a new wineskin. And so I'd like to just uh, close this part out with a time of prayer for you to think about this, and then there's going to be uh, a closing song. Let's pray. Lord, may you empower us and guide us in how we can respond to your message and your model of how your new wine of the Holy Spirit wants to transform and renew our hearts from the inside out and to make us people that can truly demonstrate on a personal level within our relationships with groups, whatever that is, and then on a congregational level, we can live out the new covenant of breaking the mold that is obedient to your will and to your way. So help us to have teachable open hearts for your spirit to work, to renew and restore and refresh. And I pray this in Christ. Amen.